Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I'm not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who is going to rant at you for a little bit. It's true. I've been warned that there was a rant incoming. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard about what's going on with Pastor Betty Rendon. Nope. Okay, she has been treated like shit by this country. She came here from Colombia seeking asylum. Oh, yes, I have heard about her. Yeah, her asylum was refused, but she stayed in the country and went to a Lutheran seminary. Like, the least threatening person in the world. She has no criminal record. And ICE agents came into her home, and they took her to an ICE detention facility, and now they've sent her and her husband back to Colombia, separating her from her daughter and granddaughter. Because her, her daughter has DACA protection, and her granddaughter is a citizen. So... Immigration system in this country, broken, terrible, and everybody, Christian, heathen, whatever, you should be ashamed. We all we all should be ashamed of what this country is doing. Yeah, this is not okay. It's just, I, there's nothing other to say that this is not okay. We should not be treating human beings like this. Yeah. Specifically human beings who are trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, it's, our priorities are screwed up in this country. There are way better ways that... Law enforcement can use their energy. Even people who are not big fans of law enforcement in general, at the very least, we should have them be doing something else. Absolutely anything else, really. So, that is my rant. Um, She just got deported, like, yesterday. It'll be a little bit old news uh, by the time this comes out, but don't forget about her or other immigrants in this country. Immigrants make this country great. Absolutely. Well, on that note, what are we talking about this week, Brian? (laughs) And... Hard left turn. Great. <laughs> this week we're talking about Vacation Bible School. Yes! So, uh, a little peek behind the curtain. It is Memorial Day weekend, or it is a directly post-Memorial Day weekend here in the United States, which means it is the official, unofficial start of summer here in the United States. So, I like that we're now officially talking about summer vacation. Yeah, but also school. Also school, because <laughs> nothing is allowed to be fun. Oh no, Vacation Bible School is really fun. Okay, nothing about those that phrase sounds fun except the word vacation. <laughs> so, I'm going to have to take your word on that. So, Vacation Bible School is a kids program that churches run. It's usually like kindergarten to like fourth grade or so. Okay. And it's usually a week long. All right, and it's like summer camp. Pretty much, but like at a church. You do like crafts, sing songs, learn Bible stories, play games. Okay, so it's like day camp. Yeah. Do you go home at the end of the night, or do you, like... Yeah, you okay. go home. So it is like day camp. It's, yeah, it's church just like day a, camp. a couple hours in the morning, nice break for your parents. <laughs> yeah, that's quality. As a child who had two working parents growing up, I my entire summer was just day camp. Sure. It was like, great, we're at YMCA day camp for these four weeks, and then we're at three weeks of theater camp, and then you're going to sleepaway camp for two weeks, and then we're going on family vacation, and then you're back <laughs> at school. And, like, that was how my summer worked. So I'm all about it. I do know some families who would seek out different churches because not all churches do their vacation Bible school at the same time. And they would just church hop throughout the summer and just go like, yeah, make foam crafts all summer. Good. What kind of crafts? Were there rosary making crafts? Oh, yeah. Like the rosary I had last week that had the colorful beads would be the kind that you would make at a vacation Bible school. Or like I made a a cross out of clothespins one time. Okay. One time I made a chicken out of a paper cup and it clucked adorable how'd that work 
Or, I'm sorry, it was a plastic cup. You, like, put a string in it and, like, jerk on the string and it clucks. Oh, that's adorable. (laughs) Yeah, good times. Good times. (laughs) Crafts. (laughs) Okay, so talk to me about Vacation Bible School. Sure, so I do not have a, like, biblical origin of this because... It's a school where you cover the Bible. Sure. I'm not surprised. (laughs) I'm not surprised that, like, Jesus didn't stand on a mountain somewhere and say, and for one week in summer, you must send your children to craft camp. (laughs) Oh, man, what if he did? He'd be down. Oh, I'm sure he loves the idea of Vacation Bible School. (laughs) Vacation Bible School, it starts around the end of the 19th century. Okay. Which makes sense, because that's... Slightly after, we have kind of figured out when school is happening across the United States. Sure, yeah. We start to get a more standardized academic calendar. Yeah. Except for places where they go year-round so that the children can help on the farm. Well, actually, that was the summer break being because of farm kids is actually kind of a myth. Really? Yeah, because summer is not a time when you're doing a lot of things on a farm. Well, yeah, I just thought that they. it's not that that's it. I heard that there's some places that, like, because they needed the kids on the farm in, like, fall for harvesting, they would go year-round so that they could take more intermittent breaks over the course of the year to help with the different farm schedules. Well, all schools used to be year-round, and it would show up when you can, pretty much. Yeah, that's true. And farm kids would go in the summer and winter because that's when they were the least needed. And it was the city kids who... There was no air conditioning in their school, so they would escape for the summer, and the city kids won out. There we go. (laughs) Us city kids. Ugh, how dare they. I know. As, as a city kid, I am <laughs> not sorry. Whatever. I, I grew up adjacent to a farm, not on a farm. It's true. I saw cows this weekend and thought of you. Oh, it's nice. It's true. They were <laughs> very good cows. <laughs> so we're starting end of the 19th century mm-hmm. because we've got, we've got summer vacation now. Yeah. And Bishop John Hell Vincent of the Methodist Episcopal Church became the... General Agent of the Methodist Sunday School Union. Wait, can we slow down on Methodist Episcopal? It is a kind of Methodist. Okay. It's not a kind of Episcopalian. All right. Cool. (laughs) I just had to ask. (laughs) I was like, those are two words that are different. I believe for the most part, the Methodist Episcopal Church is rolled into United Methodist at this point. Right. But there is the AME Church, which is still a thing, and that the the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Cool. Great. Just figured I'd ask. Yeah. Fair enough. So, this Methodist, he gets in charge of Sunday school. Yes. Bishop John, in charge of the Methodist Sunday School Union in 1866. Great. And for 20 years, he led the American Sunday School movement. This was a big thing for him, but it was still just Sundays all through the year. Cool. And was he, like, standardizing what the curriculum was of Sunday schools and those kinds of things, or was he just advocating more children should go to Sunday school? I'm not sure about the specifics of earlier on in the movement, but I know once he got rolling in 1873, he created the Sunday School Assembly at a campsite on Lake Chautauqua, I think that's how you say that, in New York. Is that C, is it Chautauqua? Is it Chautauqua? C-H-A-T-A-Q-U something? Yeah. Chautauqua. Sure. Chautauqua. Great. I think that's how that word is pronounced. Great. I don't know. I That was, man, and I looked up other things. I didn't look up that one. That's fine. That the one. one lake that you talk about once doesn't always need looked up. Yeah. So at this campsite, he created a six-week course for Sunday school instructors. Oh, great. 
So he was, I guess he was standardizing because he was teaching a curriculum to So this teachers. was summer camp for Sunday school teachers as opposed to for students. Correct. Great. And it, yeah, it was at a camp, which is interesting. That's adorable. <laughs> and this was very, very successful. So much so that it was opened up to people from other denominations. Oh, great. Because they were just like, this is good. We're teaching our kids about God. You're good at teaching kids about God. Great. It's all the same Bible. Here. Yeah. You can learn something useful from this. Yeah. I, it didn't say anywhere, but I assume when it said interdenominational, it means for all types of Protestants. Yeah. Catholics usually are not into this. Oh, interesting. Especially in the United States until very recently, there's been a, a pretty big Protestant Catholic divide. On Sunday school or on vacation Bible school? In, in general. I guess not even just especially in the United States. Um, everywhere. Protestants and Catholics don't get along until very recently. <laughs> Fair. In mean, all forms. <laughs> so chances are that Father John and his Methodist Sunday school camp are probably hanging out with other Protestants. Yeah. And but, their Sunday But a variety schools. of Protestants. Cool. And this camp, it was, like, it had, like, a family vacation atmosphere. And so people just, like, kind of went on vacation to it and also learned how to teach kids. Great. He also went on to create a correspondence course program and found a school of theology. The Chautauqua School of Theology. There we go. Yeah. So his was not really a school for children, but it was a summer theology school. Cool. <laughs> it was it was Sunday school for Sunday schools. Yes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Great. <laughs> the first one that we get for children was in Montreal, Canada. Ooh. In 1877. All right. And it was founded by a public school superintendent who, try as I might, I could not find his name. Okay. But he exists. <laughs> yeah. Great. And he just called it Vacation School. Nice. His curriculum included Bible stories, handcraft, hymns, calisthenics, military drills, and patriotic exercises. You know, all the essentials. <laughs> right. Very important. Also, like, we're, this is my uh, real question. When we talk about patriotism, are we thinking Canadian? Are we thinking Quebecois? I have a lot of questions. I mean, they were in Canada, so I assume it was... Yeah, but he was in Montreal, which is in Quebec, which has its own breed of patriotism. I don't know. I've never been to Montreal. Okay. Well, but if we have any Quebecois listeners, sound off on your theories here. <laughs> I don't know. I assume people were just, like, saluting a flag, marching. I don't sure. know. I do like that it's, like, hymns and military drills. Oh, but there's a hymn that's March on Christian Soldiers. Well, yes, because the Bible <laughs> is full of war. We definitely mix up military and Christianity in a way that's super not okay. Yeah. But I just think that, like, we're going to teach your children calisthenics and handicrafts and also military drills. Yep. <laughs> it's a little of everything. All the essentials. Good job, nameless superintendent. Good for him. Um, <laughs> his idea was just he wanted to give kids something to do when schools were closed. Sure. That makes total sense to me. And it was a really popular program while he was running it, but it kind of fizzled out after he himself stopped. Okay. So he was sort of the one-man force behind this particular program. Right. And then another one, another vacation Bible school was founded in Hopedale, Illinois, by a public school teacher and Methodist Sunday school teacher at Hopedale United Methodist Church. Cool. Her name was uh, Maddie Pritchard Miles. All right. And she thought that she didn't have enough time to teach children about the Bible, so she created a four-week daily summer program held in a local school. Cool. And she founded it in 1894 with 40 students. 
Wow, that's a good turnout to start teaching children about the Bible over the summer. Yeah. I mean, some of these some of these that we'll get into are just massive, and I don't know how they recruited so many children so quickly. I mean, I guess if you're the one church in, like, a large community, it's easy to be like, hey, would you like us to take your children off your hands for a little bit every day? Because we can do that for you. Yeah, if you're the one church in the area that has the program, then you get all the little kids from all the churches. And also if everyone's family has a gazillion kids. Mm, that's true. Mm-hmm. When everyone has six siblings, it's, like, easy to rack them up. That is certainly true. Yeah. This Sunday school uh, cost $1 for each kid. Okay. And if you didn't already have a Bible, the American Bible Society would give you one. Good. So free books. Yeah. Well, book. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the the most important book. Sure. (laughs) For vacation Bible school. For sure. (laughs) The essential book for Bible school. (laughs) Then the next one we have, well, I don't don't know what happened to the Hopedale one. I think it was another just kind of a a one-off. Yeah. Seemed to go well while she was running it. Fair. Another program popped up in Elk Mound, Wisconsin, and it was founded in 1900 by Howard R. Vaughn, a Congregationalist pastor, and he started with classes for ministers, and then he moved on to Bible school for people of all ages, so Great. including children and also adults. Nice. And people would show up and pitch tents and camp and get religious education. Cool. So this was a lot like the earlier one that I mentioned. Yeah, this feels a little more like Chautauqua. Yeah. And his focus was teaching the teachers of Sunday schools. And this went on for nine years, during which time he and his fellow teachers, Dr. William J. Munch, Professor Gordon, who didn't have a first name, I guess. Sure. And Marie Lieberman used educational psychology to experiment and develop new teaching practices. One of these experiments that worked out very well for them was separating their Bible school into grades. Hey, look, what a novel concept. Yeah, which no no one had thought of before. I guess if you're in a one-room schoolhouse, that's how that goes. But now you can sort of measure kids by their age groups and make sure that everyone catches up and learns things at the same rate. Yeah. And eventually they had their pedagogy down and they started publishing teacher guides. Oh, cool. The classes... For the teachers became less important once they had these standardized, easy-to-follow guides. Oh, for sure. And so they focused more on expanding the schools for the children. That makes sense. And now even more kids can get this education because they can, you know, mail out these guides and they can use them in more places and more teachers can use them. And Yeah. And they eventually ended up dropping all of the teacher classes and just forming a full religious day school in 1908. There you go. The school ran for three weeks from... 9 a.m. to noon, and the children learned Bible verses and songs, played games, learned about church history, and they learned about other historical figures. There we go. Um, And they had all kinds of books that were part of the curriculum, but part of the way that this class was taught is there was only one copy of the book, and it was supposed to be the teacher reading it because they didn't want the kids to have something in their hands, I guess. Interesting. To keep them from being distracted. All right. But... And then you don't have to worry about buying a bunch of books for a bunch of kids, or kids not being able to buy their own books and all that, which feels nicely egalitarian. Yeah, because then they had, man, they had a ton of books. They had one that was just like, modern Christian heroes, and and it was just like, role models to look up to. The seventh grade class read uh, Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. 
Oh, wow. Which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> this is an elaborate curriculum. Oh, yeah. So I found the the curriculum listed out class by class, grade by grade. Wow. There's a book from 1920 called The Vacation Religious Day School, Teacher's Manual of Principles and Programs. It's by Hazel Strait Stafford. She wrote out everything. You can find it online. And I read the whole thing. And it's, of course you did. Oh, it was so fun. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. You say this sounds so fun, but how fun was a day at this day school? Actually, not bad. Okay, because it makes it sound like a lot of reading and listening and very few crafts. So there wasn't a lot of crafts, but there was a lot of creative drama. Okay. I'm all about that. For people who didn't do theater at Northwestern and aren't as familiar with creative drama. <laughs> um, Real. The most common thing that people connect it to is if you played the game when you were a little kid, like going on a bear hunt, where there's like hand motions and you're like telling a story as a group, that sort of thing. So what they would do a lot in this school are Bible story dramatizations, where they would read a Bible story and then they would act it out and kind of interpret and expand upon the characters and the stories. So this sounds like a thing our friend Megan from Brian is a Heathen would be all about. Oh, for sure. Because this is a lot of the stuff she works on now. She does. She she has definitely uh, bibliodramas, I think is what she calls them. Sure. But yeah, lots of that going on. Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. But I do want to just backtrack a second because part of my frustration in this episode is there are so many women involved in the development of this at of Vacation Bible School as a thing, and they were all either referred to by their husband's, like, Mrs. Husband name. Oh, God. Or, like, not really highlighted. So I just want to backtrack and say the the book, this full guide, even though she did not found the school, that was Howard Vaughn. Hazel Straight Stafford was a high school teacher, and she taught at this religious day school for 10 years. Wow. And studied under him and literally wrote the book on it. So without her, this probably would have gone the way of some of these earlier schools that, like, when their primary founder stepped down, fizzled out. But it sounds like she sort of established them as a legacy. I think his program was a little bit bigger than some of these others, so it might have kept going. But I definitely would not have known nearly as much about this program without her. Great. Well, shout out to Hazel. Yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. So my favorite part of her, of, of this manual, is there are seven convictions that the creators of the program have. And one of them is the program of the vacation session of the church school can make use of the prevailing play spirit without in any way invalidating the educational efficiency of the work. Play is not incompatible with childhood religion. Okay, so this sounds like it might have been fun. Yeah, I just, I think it's very cute. Yes, that that warms my heart. But I was also talking to one of my friends who teaches Sunday school, and they list out the entire schedule for each day, like, very detailed. Mm-hmm. And there's five minutes for calisthenics. This is just like, <laughs> walk around and shake out all your wiggles because you're sitting still for too long? It is. And my friend, she was like, you cannot get children to do anything in five minutes. <laughs> Real. I would love to see a side-by-side comparison of, like, that timed-out schedule versus the actual schedule. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I have a couple other quotes from this that are just funny, because clearly I just am am deeply endeared to this manual. Yes, clearly. (laughs) This one is weird. I'm ready. Care should be taken by the teacher to 
provide a vivid, attractive picture of Christ, the man-hero, which will inspire the class with a new zeal to study his life. Christ as a man of sorrows does not appeal to young folk. Christ is a humorist, storyteller, the alert, the observer, and the scourger. It makes a tremendous appeal. And she also suggests an introductory, inspirational talk to bring Jesus before the class as he moved about on earth, his cheek tanned by the mountain air and sun, his feet dusty with the highways of Samaria, his lips passing the time of day with neighbors in Capernaum or acquaintances about Jerusalem, his soul sometimes cast down by doubt or disappointment, his feelings annoyed by the importunities of disciples or the impertinence of scribe and Pharisee. So Hazel has a huge crush on Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the, the tanned cheek thing, I was like, oh, Jesus is a little sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Hazel has a big crush on Jesus. I'm down. <laughs> she makes him sound great. She seems fun. Yeah. I think I would hang out with her. Yeah, I'm big, big old fan. So, so that's that school. Sure. And that's not even the one that people count as the beginning of vacation Bible school. Oh, really? Yeah. The, the one that people usually say started in 1898. All right. On the Lower East Side in New York City. Okay. And this one was started by Virginia Sinclair Hawes, a, the children's ministry director at Epiphany Baptist Church. Okay. So not Methodist this time. No. Different, different Protestants. Yeah. And she was concerned about the growing number of immigrant children in the area and was worried that they would get into trouble when school was out if they didn't have anything else to do. Great. So cool intentions, maybe also a little racism, classism yeah. there. A little, a little questionable motives, but good end result. Yeah. So she started the Everyday Bible School. Okay. And she rented the beer garden behind a saloon at 324 East 71st Street. I love this. I was curious because I had the address and I looked. It's not still a saloon. Okay. Is it just like an apartment building or yeah, something? I was bummed. <laughs> that is a bummer. But I do like the idea that she's like, where can I gather a bunch of immigrant children to teach them about God? A bar. Yeah. This worked out because the school was held in the mornings. So, so the bar didn't have, could make money off of renting the space, probably. Right. And they had a free empty space to hang out in. Yeah, and, and it, it was probably like a local landmark, so people knew where it was, and they felt comfortable like going in there. Yeah, for sure. That was actually a really big thing, is for children to go into a church, they would need to be dressed up in their church clothes. If they're just hanging out at this beer garden, they can be in their play clothes. That's really smart. She thought this through. I like it. So many awesome ladies in this right? I love this. <laughs> and the beer garden was in a mostly Irish and Bohemian Catholic neighborhood. Which was probably on purpose because she was trying to focus on immigrants, but because they were Catholic, they refused to attend, mostly. So she mostly ended up getting Baptist kids. Yeah, sure. And they did things like singing worship songs, reading Bible stories, playing games, doing crafts, drawing, cooking. And the program was very successful. Awesome. Yeah, so Epiphany Baptist Church decided that they were going to do it again the next year. But the church leadership decided, we're going to move it to the church this year. We're going to move it out of the bar. Bummer. I like the idea that it was in a bar. And so did everyone else. It was much less successful the next year. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So did they move it back to the bar? They did eventually. Virginia had warned them that it was going to be less successful if they moved it to the church, but they didn't listen to her. <laughs> listen to Virginia. She knows what she's doing. And so the next year... 
they moved it to a Presbyterian church. Okay. And it did not go any better. And then (laughs) finally, in 1901, they moved it back to the beer garden. And then everyone came back. And it went back to being wildly successful. Good. (laughs) So successful that there were seven separate vacation Bible schools that summer. Wow. In seven separate beer gardens? Unclear. Okay. I don't know if it was staggered throughout the summer or if it was seven different beer gardens. Sure. (laughs) Either way, good work, Virginia. Yeah, she, she got it down. Yeah. And... She retired on top. 1901 was her last year leading the schools. And they kept going after that. They did. First, I want to mention today there is a bronze plaque in the foyer of the First Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, honoring her for her pioneering work in religious education. Good for her. Yeah, because that's uh, that's where she's from, is Charlottesville. Okay. So her work did continue. The, mm-hmm. the church continued it on, and it was so impressive that word of it reached Dr. Robert G. Beauville. Executive Secretary of the New York City Baptist Board of Missions. Great. Robert, like Virginia, was concerned that without something else to do, the children would get into trouble. Of course. That's I- what we're idle all... hands are the devil's plaything. <laughs> yep, that's what we're all thinking. Yep. <laughs> so he started recommending Virginia's model to other Baptist churches in the area. Smart. Hey, do you have an empty beer garden that you could put used to? Because the best way to do this is to gather a bunch of kids in a bar yeah, and my, teach them about God. My favorite thing is that these are all Baptists and all these Baptists are hanging out in bars. Yes. They probably don't drink. Well, that, that means that they, like, don't care if they're in a bar or not. They care. They okay. really care that they're in a bar. Okay. <laughs> but I still, I find it delightful. Fair. <laughs> Eventually this program gets big enough that they, they do move it out of the bar. Okay. One thing that Robert adds to Virginia's program is he gets the idea to staff the schools with college students from Union Theological Seminary. Brilliant. Yeah. Because they're probably on summer vacation too. They are. And they also get people from Brown and Columbia art schools. Oh, nice. To like art at the children. Yeah. Here, do some crafts. Yeah. That's, you know, I imagine they're all doing, I guess, some whatever the Victorian equivalent of foam crafts are sure and also i bet if they're they're it's just like balsa wood it's all balsa wood they're knitting yeah i don't know i also imagine that if you are an art student in new york in 1901 1902 you're probably studying a lot of medieval art that was just like paintings of religious iconography so you probably like know a lot about like what paintings of various bible scenes look like that might be yeah I don't know. I feel like it would have been fun. Oh, I'm sure it would have been the best summer job if that was your jam. Yeah, and if I was one of those students, I would just stay at the beer garden after my shift was over and then catch a drink. I'm sure some of them did. (laughs) One of the students that was part of this first year that they had the students working as teachers was Henry Emerson Fostick, who would go on to become a famous liberal pastor who championed the church's cooperation with psychiatry. Great. So, good for him. Good for him. They got good people. Yeah. And... Robert went on to found five of his own programs in 1901, and then 10 in 1902. And the 10 programs had a combined 1,500 students. Wow. (laughs) So he just really ran with it. Oh, yeah. It grew. And then it grew to 17 schools. I don't know the exact number of children in 1903. Good stuff. Yeah. I know a little bit more about the 1902 program because there was a newspaper article written about it. Nice. That one ran from July 7th to August 22nd. Okay. And it went from 9.30 to 11.30 each day. 
in various buildings all over the city that were owned by the Baptist Board of Missions. Cool. But they're all still in New York. Yeah. Cool. If not New York City proper, at least like the surrounding area. Sure. And there were 14 full-time instructors that were college students teaching Bible lessons. And they also taught music and games. And at the end of the session, the students got to showcase needle and beadwork and clay models. And they also had a program of songs, recitations, and calisthenics and drills. Of course. <laughs> it's very important. Gotta get our uh, our patriotism in here. For sure. It's <laughs> what you do when you have gathered large groups of America's youth. Yeah. And what's cool about this school in particular is they welcomed any denomination who wanted to come. Great. And also anyone of any race. That's awesome. Which was really, really cool for this time. Yeah. But don't get... Too excited because the newspaper article that was written describing this described it in a super racist way. I'm not going to repeat it. Please don't. <laughs> but it was just like, look at all these people together. Yeah. I'm going to use many derogatory terms. Yeah. Like, please don't. You don't need to, like, be as descriptive in your weird physical descriptions of these children. Oh, God. <laughs> God. Thank you for not repeating it, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Trying to be better. Good. Uh, in... 1907, Bobel took the program to other Baptist churches in Philadelphia and Chicago. Great. So now we're starting to expand. Yeah. And then in 1910, the Presbyterian Church's Home Mission Board adopted the Vacation Bible School model. So we're moving across denominations. Yeah, the Presbyterians have got it. Yeah. Then in 1911, uh, Robert Bobel established the Daily Vacation Bible School Association as a national organization. Oh, cool. And so are they like a non-denominational organization for vacation Bible schools everywhere? They were at this time. I don't know if they still if exist they or what they're doing. still around. I don't think there's anything quite this unified that exists anymore. Okay. But at this time, people were just like picking up steam and consolidating resources. And in 1915, the Northern Baptist joined and a bunch of other denominations joined. And by... 1922, there were 5,000 schools. Wow. Across the country? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And then in 1923, Robert decided to go international, and he formed the World Association of Vacation Bible Schools. Cool. And then while he was doing this, like, introducing this to individual churches, building up Mm -hmm. this organization, a publishing house, Standard Publishing, in Cincinnati, Ohio, figured out that they could profit off of it. Okay. (laughs) And they're like, here, this is a thing people like. Let's make money. Exactly. So they published their first full vacation Bible school program in 1926. A little bit after he went international, I guess. Sure. It wasn't until 1948 that they divided it by grade level. So they were way behind oh, yeah. our friends over in Illinois. I think that was the Illinois Yeah. One. Or was that Wisconsin? Might have been Wisconsin. I think it was Wisconsin. I it's think the Midwest. Yeah. I think Virginia was Wisconsin. I think you're right. I just said it and I already forget it. It's all right. It's a <laughs> lot of names and dates. It is. This is a way more history-heavy episode than yeah. we usually do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, in so 1948, divided by grade level, 1957, they introduced the yearly theme. Oh, cool. Which is going to be more familiar to any listeners who did Vacation Bible School as a kid. Because there's always a wacky theme. Oh, yeah? <laughs> what kind of wacky themes are we talking about here? I remember at the beginning I mentioned that I made a chicken one year. Yep. That was farm-themed. Okay. 
So they're not, like, religious-themed. They're just theme-themed. Oh, yeah. They're just weird themes. <laughs> it's, like, under the sea or farm animals or whatever. There was one theme that was literally just pandas. Okay. <laughs> Is it the theme for the whole week? Yeah. it was the, the, That program was called Panamania. Adorable. <laughs> and, like, all your songs, all your crafts, everything is about pandas. Okay. <laughs> How many Jesus songs are there about pandas? Oh, they write them. Oh, okay. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, we, uh, we start to get away from hymns and more into just, like, fun kids' worship songs. Is this where you find the dinosaur hymns? No, that's different. Okay. Marty Huggin just did his own thing. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we've talked about the dinosaur hymns on the show already, at least once. I don't I think this is the first time our listeners have. are hearing about Marty Huggin's dinosaur hymns. Um, if it is the first time you're hearing about it, look them up. They're yep. excellent. They're a gem. <laughs> Specifically, look up You Should See Me Soar. It's the pterodactyl song. It sounds like a psalm of lament, and it makes me laugh every time. It's great. <laughs> so, by 1998, more than 5 million kids were attending specifically standard publishing's programs every year. Okay. So is standard publishing just like you could you send us money and we send you our curriculum? Yeah, they send you a kid. Cool. And for a long time they had a monopoly on it. Mm-hmm. But nowadays there's a bunch of different publishing houses that will put out different programs. Okay. One that I'm pretty sure is the one that I'm most familiar with is just called group publishing. Okay. And this year they have three options. All right. The first is Roar. Make your VBS the main event. Main spelled M-A-N-E. Okay, so it's lion themed. <laughs> yes. This epic African adventure engages the whole herd. At Roar, kids explore God's goodness and celebrate a ferocious faith that powers them through this wildlife. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Option number two. Athens. Imagine leaving a life of privilege and power to face angry mobs, painful imprisonment, and chain-breaking earthquakes. All to spread the life-changing truth of God's love. It's about Paul. Okay. <laughs> Our good friend Paul! <laughs> yeah, that one's less clear what it's about, but it's about it Paul. Is. I was like, is, there, is this a Crusades thing? No, because no. that wouldn't have been Athens. There's a lot of questions. I was about to say, like, ancient Athens did not do... Right. <laughs> Great. Paul-themed. Yes. And the third one is Yeehaw! Okay. Saddle up for a trailblazing weekend of fun. Kids will kick up their heels at Yeehaw VBS as they stampede through the wild frontier and celebrate the greatest truth of all. God is good. Oh my god. These are so much. (laughs) I love it, and it's so much. So, like, that's what Vacation Bible School is now. Okay. And that's basically what it was when I was a kid. Fair. And it's cool. It's, It's a lot of fun. I know people who are not particularly religious who still have fond memories of it because, you know, it's just a, you hang out and you okay. do so weird like crafts. two to four hours in the morning for a week or two or three. These days, it's a week. Okay. All the programs that I am aware of are, are just one week. Okay. It was these early programs that were four, five, six weeks. There are some complaining pastors online who are upset that we have reduced it down from six weeks to one week. But there are still, like, multi-week religious sleepaway camps that I'm sure do more of those, like, similar to the style of those long programs used to. Oh, yeah. You you can totally find as much religion as you want. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Correct. <laughs> that is Vacation Bible School. I love it. What a charming story. It is. I'll give you the link to that 1920 handbook if anyone else 
is as delighted by it as I am. Yeah, we can put it up on the Facebook page if people want to read it. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back for some more fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it's time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they're the patron of. Who do we have this week, Brian? This week, we have St. Julian. Julian? Okay. Tell me about St. Julian. Julian was born to a noble family in maybe France, Belgium, or Italy. Okay, that's a broad swath of places that don't even speak the same language. (laughs) And maybe the 4th century. Okay, great. We're off to a great start. (laughs) It's unclear. (laughs) But he was a... Friend and advisor to the king, whichever king. Okay, a king. <laughs> well, and at that point, Italy wasn't even a country, so it could have been a lot of different kings. Right, it, but he was a friend and advisor to the king. Cool. And the king arranged a marriage between him and a widow. Okay. And a, by all accounts, a happy one. Great. <laughs> I was about to say, and then he decided that he wanted to dedicate himself to God. Because that's usually how this story goes. No, it's this is a little different. Okay. Uh, once Julian was out hunting... And he came across a stag. The stag warned him that he would be punished for hunting him. Okay. (laughs) Talking animals. Always off to a good start. (laughs) And Julian did kill the stag. Oh, so now he's going to get punished. The stag warned him that he would end up killing his mother and father. Okay, now this has turned into a Greek tragedy. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) What is happening? And... This freaked him out, not enough to stop him from killing the stag, but whatever. All right. Uh, So he and his wife moved far away to prevent him from killing his parents. Okay, so this is actually just the plot of a Greek tragedy. It is. It really is. (laughs) The problem is, he didn't tell his parents why he up and left, so they went looking for him. Of course. (laughs) Eventually, they found his castle. And when his wife figured out who these travelers were, she offered them her and her husband's bed to sleep in for the night to rest up from their journey. Okay. Did he tell his wife why they were leaving? Unclear. Okay. But his wife knew who his parents were and... Sure. Invited them to sleep in the bed. Okay. And then Julian arrived home. I think I know where this is going. And he saw two people in his bed and assumed it was his wife in bed with another man. And so he killed both of them. And he killed both of them. And then life became art. <laughs> <laughs> and then his his wife heard the commotion and appeared. And Julian realized what he had done. Dun dun dun! So then Julian and his wife traveled to Rome as pilgrims seeking absolution. Okay, yeah. Like you do. Like you do. And they settled down near a river... A river. Yeah, a river, presumably on the way back from Rome. Okay. And they built an inn and a hospital for travelers. Great. And Julian cared for the poor and sick, and he ferried people across the river for free. Cool. Yeah. One day, many years later, Julian was so moved with compassion for a pilgrim leper who had nearly frozen to death that he gave the man his own bed. Once the man was settled in bed, he revealed that he was actually an angel. Aww. And he announced that God had accepted Julian's penance, and then the angel disappeared. Great. I feel like sad travelers in Bible stories or Greek myths are all either angels or witches. Or Zeus. Probably true. Or Odin. Yeah. Or it's either a witch, an angel, or someone trying to sleep with you. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> Odin is all three. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> okay, so he gets his penance of the angel. Yeah, and... 
then, as far as anyone knows, Julian and his wife lived out the rest of their happy lives there at the inn, helping people. Great. What a charming story with so few details. <laughs> yeah, there was not a lot about him. But I was like, this is weird. I like it. I like it. <laughs> it's a good one, but it's very light on the facts. <laughs> it is widely believed to be all completely fiction. Oh, I am sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shannon, what is Julian the patron of? Is he the patron saint of fairymen or fairies? He is. I got it. The patron of fairymen. And also probably innkeepers and also maybe people who work in hospitals. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) He is the patron of boatmen, carnival workers, childless people, circus workers, clowns, ferrymen, fiddlers, fiddle players, hospitality, hotel keepers, hoteliers, innkeepers, jugglers, knights, pilgrims, shepherds, travelers, and wandering musicians. Great. It's way easier to guess when the saints are fictional, because the stories are simpler and it's easier to pick out which ones they're going to be. That's fair, because the story is directly what they Yeah, except for, I think we missed the clown story in there somewhere. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, there's somewhere I'm sure there is a story about Julian and clowns and or carnivals. I, I mean, it could just be that they're wandering entertainers, so they're on the sure. road. Sure. I believe it. It's probably the best bet for that. Yeah. So that that is that is Julian. What a delightful story. Well, thank you all so much for listening this week. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. You can tell a friend on the internet by leaving a rating or a review. You can tell a friend in person. You can also tell us that you like the show, either via email at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com, on Twitter at school number four heathens, or on our new Facebook page. You can either search Sunday School for Heathens or go to facebook.com slash school number four heathens, where we'll post cool things like that vacation Bible school curriculum that Brian found that seems fantastically interesting. It is. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much to Adam Griffin for our awesome music on the show. Thank you to David Griffin for editing and also for our logo. And thanks for being so pleased when we put it up on the television on Brian's awesome Different Drummers video. Not for long enough for people to realize Jesus is holding a joint. Yep. For just (laughs) the right amount of time. Thanks for that, David. Uh, And thank you to all of you. With that, amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm